Good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be in this space. Um, I teach here, so this is a very comfortable space for me. So I hope that you are comfortable too. And I've always wondered, how does Scott do it week after week after week? Never a dud. And I figured out part of it, uh, since we've opened the Middleton campus, it's the adrenaline that you feel in trying to drive the speed limit back from Middleton to here. So I'm a little here, but... Um, If you would like to open the text this morning or follow along on the slides, we are going to 2 Corinthians once again, uh, chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. This will be my text today, but I want you to keep Psalm 9 in the back of your mind. You might want to even look at that again. 2 Corinthians 6. Since we work together with him... We are also begging you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He says, I listened to you at the right time, and I helped you on the day of salvation. Look, now is the right time. Look, now is the day of salvation. We don't give anyone any reason to be offended about anything so that our ministry won't be criticized. Instead, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in every way. We did this with our great endurance through problems, disasters, stressful situations. We went through beatings, imprisonments, riots. We experienced hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. We display purity, knowledge, patience, and generosity. We served with the Holy Spirit, genuine love, telling the truth, and God's power. We carried the weapons of righteousness in our right hand and our left hand. We were treated with honor and dishonor and with verbal abuse and good evaluation. We were seen as both fake and real, as unknown and well-known, as dying. And look, we are alive. We were seen as punished but not killed, as going through pain but always happy, as poor but making many rich, and as having nothing but owning everything. Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you, and our hearts are wide open. There are no limits to the affection that we feel for you. You are the ones who placed boundaries on your affection for us. But as a fair trade, I'm talking to you as children. Open your hearts wide, too. Our 
I remember that it was one of those days where the trees and the hills looked gray. As gray as a winter sky, but it was summer. And the drive through the fog seemed to take forever, as did the walk from the car, the elevator ride to the top floor. And I began to smell that familiar antiseptic filled with illness odor. I had only been there a few times in the last six months, for which I carried a deep and silent grief. I should have been there more. But I was too angry and upset and sad and confused. I'm not sure. I just knew that it was too hard to see him as he was. There were locks on the doors. And so we signed in and waited, and soon the caretaker came and let us in, and I walked down the long corridor to what was called the recreational area. What an absurd name for such a dark place. Would he be there or would he be hiding in his room as he often did? I spotted him in a chair beside the window and as always, he did not look out, he looked down. It was hard for me to believe it was the same person He had lost over 60 pounds in six months. His skin was gray and lifeless. It looked to me that he had aged 40 years. And I wondered if he would understand that I had come to say goodbye. Hi, Dad. No response. I often wondered, went through his troubled mind? Did he understand that he was on the psych ward? Or did he imagine, perhaps with some truth in it, that we had imprisoned him? The depression came on suddenly. Some said, breakdown. But I wonder if something breaks down, we anticipate it being fixed up and the fixing was taking so long. They tried every drug, every combination of drugs. If in fact he had lost his mind, where did it go and why couldn't we find it? If he had in fact understood it all, when it was, it was his birthday and I was about to leave for college. How do you celebrate a birthday when every day, every moment of the day, for the last six months, this man had wanted to die? And how do I leave? How do I move 500 miles away? And how do I move on and embrace my future? He looked at me and tears welled up in his eyes and he put his face in his hands as he had many times before 
and he cried, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please take me home. You might wonder what started his torment. You see, my dad, after decades of working in the same place, Napa Auto Parts store, where he went after World War II, He'd always been in the same store, but there was a new boss of a new store in our hometown that would save him a commute. And this new boss promised him much. But when my dad started the job, he found his new boss to be intensely critical, verbally abusive. And though he tried to stay, my dad took what I believe is a very courageous step and he quit. And he was in the hospital just days later. He's been on my mind, not just because of Father's Day, but we've just gone through Memorial Day. He fought in Okinawa in World War II. And I think of him because this August 17th, he will have been 100 years old. And next summer, he will have been gone for 30 years. The last day I saw him was when he walked me down the aisle. He was, of course, a part of what we call the greatest generation, the generation who made sacrifices hardly seen in American history since. They were the generation who would never ask the question whether they were happy in their job. They worked for their families with little complaint. And so I think dad broke because he quit his job. It went against what he believed in to be his duty to us. He was convinced when we visited him in the hospital that we were starving without enough food or the necessities of life. He had shirked his responsibilities to us in his mind. And it didn't matter how much we tried to reassure him. He believed we were doomed. But if we did reassure him that we were okay, would that mean to him that we didn't need him anymore? I applaud my father for quitting and standing up for himself. I think it was the bravest thing he ever did. But such a horrible, horrible cost he suffered for protecting himself. 12 years of deep, tormenting depression until he died. The storm was not calm. 
criticism, harsh, belittling, verbal abuse, criticism broken. And if we are honest with ourselves, we would say that it, it kind of breaks us too. There is, of course, a place for constructive criticism, but I think it is rare anymore. We have to be in a particular kind of relationship, a trusting relationship with someone in order to take criticism well. The problem is, and let's be honest, it is much easier to give out criticism than to take it. Why is it hard, so hard for us to get in our minds that if criticism hurts us, it will hurt the person we criticize. And great care should be given when giving criticism lovingly. Or maybe we really don't care, actually. Maybe that's the problem. Perhaps we criticize in order to hurt the other person. Perhaps that's it. I do know that we have gotten to a place in our society where our habit is to say horrible things to people in the habit of objectifying people and reducing them to a bit of data. Well, we know we've been in 2 Corinthians for a few weeks, we know that the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians was rocky. We know that Paul established the church. He was their pastor for over a year, and he went on in his missionary trips, and he heard about the Corinthians. If you read 1 Corinthians, it reads like a chapter by chapter by chapter address of a particular problem they had. And then we get to 2 Corinthians. I think as Pastor Scott said, we don't know if there was a letter between. We don't even know if 2 Corinthians was written all at the same time. But we do know that 2 Corinthians has a particular theme that Paul was criticized and he needed to defend himself because their criticism had been very, very harsh. In our text today, Paul implies that he sees them as his beloved children. And he is not going to turn his back on them. He is not going to disown them. He is going to allow his heart to remain open to them. And he implores them to open their hearts to him in return as his children. But the level of criticism that Paul received is astonishing, really. And in chapter 6, we find that Paul needs to set them straight on some things. 
particularly how he has poured out his life for the sake of the gospel of Christ. And so he begins commending himself. It's a nice way to say defending himself. He starts by reviewing all that he has suffered for Christ, all he has suffered for the gospel, and all he has suffered for them. Great trouble, hardships and distress, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, actual hunger, dishonor, bad report, called imposter, sorrowful, dying, poor, having nothing. And then he turns to his attitude among them, his actions with them. He is not boasting, he is showing his love. I have come to you with purity, understanding, with patience, kindness. I have worked in the Holy Spirit with sincere love, truthful, in the power of God, in God's glory, with good report. He was genuine, he was rejoicing, he was living for Christ's sake, making others rich, possessing everything. We need to be aware here, and this is key, that the good does not nullify the suffering and the intensity of the bad. What we find here is Paul living a paradoxical life. In fact, there is paradox all over the place in Christianity. Think about the nature of Jesus, for example. Jesus is, according to our faith, 100% God and 100% human. Paradox. The Trinity itself, three persons, one God. Paradox. And then Jesus himself really said in many different places, live paradoxically. If you want to find your life, lose it. And here, particularly Paul having nothing, literally, can proclaim he possesses everything. Having nothing, which meant that Christ gave Paul the truth that to live fully meant to do what? 
to have nothing, to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, to be people of hospitality, where we set aside our own biases and welcome the stranger. Having nothing, self-emptying for the sake of the other. The heart of the Christian message implies that for Christ's sake we have nothing. And yet we possess everything that matters. We can live in a fullness of life when we live into our identity in Christ. There is an abundance of God's spiritual provision. No matter what we go through, that Christ suffers with. There is community in possessing everything. And there is the very infilling and presence and power of the Holy Spirit. These are the fruits of giving everything and suffering for Christ's sake. I believe in this kind of life with all of my heart. I believe in new creation. I believe that when we are saved by the grace of God, that the old is gone and the new has come. I believe in a new creation and what God can do in a life surrendered to him. I believe in new creation for myself. I don't have time for my testimony. I believe. But let me go back to dad. Always go back to dad. And the hundreds of people like him that I have known you see, his suffering was not willed. He didn't choose it. This was not for Christ's sake. And there is suffering that all of you know that we do not choose. Where we look for new creation but have to squint really hard. My dad's experience opened me to my own suffering, but also to deeply considering the suffering of others. Lately, I've been calling myself an exceptional theologian. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that God seems to have given me eyes to see the exceptions. The exception to the rule of how Christian life is supposed to work. 
When we are partying, there's always someone in the corner weeping. And I have eyes to see. In some ways, it's a curse. I'm about to send off a book to the publisher. Brent and I got a publisher, we got it done, and seven years later, it is flying from our hands. And in thinking about it, I decided to dedicate it to my dad. This is what I said. Dad, because of your dark night of the mind and heart and soul, I can see pain where many may not. I do not believe for one second your depression was a gift from God. But it was a gift to me. May you continue truly to rest in peace. Fred Craddock has a saying that I have always tried to keep in mind when I preach. This is what he says, it is right that preachers be concerned that the word of God not be hindered, but it is also right that they understand that this hindrance may be caused not only by the mishandling of the text of scripture, but by a misreading of the situation of the people in the congregation taking the congregation out of context is just as a much a violation of the word of god as taking the scripture out of context pastors know that even with carefully guarded study hours behind locked doors the people stand around their desks and whisper Remember me. My dad calls to me, remember me. And so I want to ask this morning, what does the gospel look like in response to suffering that is beyond our control? What is the everything for those who suffer from a peculiar kind of nothingness. What does salvation mean for those in pain? I'm a Facebooker. Most of you know that if you go to my Facebook, you won't find theological profundity. You will see pictures of cows. But a friend of mine um, posted a blog, and I read it, just as she had read it, and testified to its particular kind of truth. And so I want to read it now. There's a really interesting story about who this person is, and if you want to know it, I will tell you after. But the writer says, I don't remember most of autumn because I lost my mind late in the summer and for a long time after that I wasn't in my body. 
I was a light bulb buzzing somewhere far. After the doctor told me I was dying of cancer, the man I had married said he didn't love me anymore. And so I traced a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. And I found out that all the tragedy at once had caused such trauma that my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile, and the bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep even with my head on the toilet. I have had cancer three times now. It came back, and I am barely 30. I have a 2% chance of living. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God, he will say that I disappointed him or failed him, or maybe he'll say, I just didn't learn the lesson, so I had to repeat it again. But one thing I know for sure, he can never say he did not know me. You see, I am God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. And I have seen him in the bathroom, writing in the grout, I am sad too. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go and lay on the bath mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy, but I can't really explain it. But God is there, even now. Hear this. I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. This is the gospel too. God on the bathroom floored with us. This is salvation, too, for the exceptional among us, perhaps 
for you. God gives you your identity as his exceptional child. His exceptional child. God is on the bathroom floor with you, and he scoops you up and puts you in his lap and lets you rest. And so I pray today that God may lavish you with such tender mercies. The day after my ex-husband asked me for a divorce, Debbie had already set up one of the evenings, a Wednesday night, where we sang and we prayed. And we sang a song that night that I claimed as my own. And in doing that, I promised God that whenever we sang the bridge, that I would lift my hand. I thank you for that night. I thank you, Julie, for sitting next to me. But we're going to sing. And you're going to watch me. Because every time we sing this song, I have to raise my hand. Because God has been with me through it all. May God bless you with this salvation.